Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> Every Thursday afternoon here at the Commonwealth Club, I uh, record the podcast for Progressive Voices Network with my co-host, John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club, who happens to have, by the way, his own fabulous program, Weeks Week Political Roundtable Talk. I'm sure many of you who are sitting here today have been there, and he also is is one of the he hates it when I say this, but well, okay, he's the vice president of media. That's his full title. I usually like to say he's the boss. Uh, no, your name's on the show. <laughs> <laughs> we have a fantastic program for you this afternoon, and I really, really am so appreciative of 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 where it you know the the conversations uh, was spawned. I guess you know uh, Brett and I got together and we we're talking about the importance, the soul of the city, the people who really drive community, the people who are there for our most vulnerable and how often times we overlook the powerful work that our nonprofit um, groups and organizations and employees do for and the resources that they provide for our communities. But we don't really kind of sometimes also talk about the impact that the city and everything that is good to offer, uh, the impact that it might have on those who serve for us in the nonprofit sector and what the experiences they go through. And since so many of us who are in this fight um, for social justice and to, to be able to provide for our communities, uh, I thought that it would be a great afternoon to share those experiences and learn from two great people uh, who serve for iconic organizations here in San Francisco. First, introduce Brett Andrews, who's the executive director of Positive Resource Center, and Sherilyn Adams, who is also the executive director for Larkin Street Youth Services, both very long time organizations. Let's start with Brett and talk about, you know, PRC, how long it's been around, the services you offer and and where you're at today. Sure, sure. So good afternoon, everybody. Hopefully everybody got a little bite to eat and not too much so they don't fall asleep on me. Uh, I'm Brett Andrews and I, I am the CEO of, of PRC. PRC is an acronym uh, for Positive Resource Center. That was our we did a formal name change. Uh, PRC has been around uh, since 1987. It, it, like most aid service organizations, was in response to the AIDS crisis. Uh, at that time, uh, Social Security was denying so many people their their rightful benefits. And a group of uh, attorneys, um, gay attorneys, just came together and said, my friends and family are dying and we need to do something about it. And so it started off as a volunteer organization that ultimately grew to uh, be a formal uh, nonprofit that was providing SSI advocacy to deserving individuals. Uh, about midway through uh, the 90s, a small organization uh, bubbled up when we were, people started living longer and wanting to figure out what they wanted to do in their lives. Uh, you know, five and six months turned into 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, a small program was created called Employment Services, uh, and we merged about halfway through the mid-90s and brought together our benefits counseling and our employment services program. And at that time, that was a continuum, that was a small continuum of care. And that was, if you were too sick to work, we had fierce advocates and attorneys to get you disability benefits. As your life stabilized and you were ready to think about work, and so many of us define our very lives through the work that we do and the contributions we make, we are here to help you transition back into work, career counseling, computer training, job placement services. And so we functioned as that. To the mid 2000s, like many nonprofits, we also suffered some 
financial challenges. In 2001, we, we, we lost a significant amount of money. Uh, the agency dropped by a third in 2001. And uh, they made the decision, the board members got together and said, do we, Donna Sachet, Gary Virginia on the board at that time, um, wonderful community members, got together and said, do we, one, declare it a success and close it? Or do we, two, double down and decide that we just need to do something different? And they doubled down and decided that they were going to find an, a new executive director, have them come in and figure out ways in which we could save this very meaningful organization. Lots of beer busts, lots of things happening at, uh, at the bars, raising money. Um, and in 2003, I stepped in. And uh, we immediately just started looking at what does it mean to have this organization survive. So we s- expanded our programming to serve the mental health population. That meant that we were going to serve a broader population, but it also meant that we had opportunities for funding through through mental health services. And so we grew in the 2000s, we grew from a million dollars to just about $7 million in 2015. So that that's what we consider in business natural growth. You just deepened your services and broadened your services. And in 2015, two organizations had leadership transitions, and both organizations uh, did come to PRC in one way or another to see what would it be like to either, um, they were either trying to court me to run the organization, and I proposed bringing the organizations together as a strategic partnership based on, on really one thing and one thing only. We did an assessment of the clients that went through AIDS Emergency Fund, a small organization that provides small emergency checks. And we did an assessment of the clients at Baker Places, which Sherilyn worked at for many, many years and ran all the programs there. And we recognized that about 27% of the clients used all three organizations, all three services throughout those three organizations. And we said if it was right then, then it's right now to bring them together and create a, a real strategic partnership. So by 2016, we merged all three organizations, uh, dropped Positive Resource Center, went to PRC, and now we have a full suite of social services and behavioral health, substance use, and mental health services. There are 11 licensed sites that we have around town. Many people have probably been reading in the Chronicle about Hummingbird, the behavioral health navigation center that we have at Zuckerberg General, 29-bed facility. People can stay up to two weeks who are coming out of psych emergency services and off the street to stabilize their lives, think about what their very next steps are. Uh, we we operate that program at, at Zuckerberg General. And we have uh, co-ops. We have about 18 uh, supportive housing units, scattered site housing units throughout town. And um, we are able to transition our clients out of our treatment programs into our co-op sites. And you're going to hear a lot of that conversation and these words popping up. You saw Supervisor Ronan and Supervisor Haney's co-sponsoring um, Mental Health SF, uh, which is really just mental health treatment on demand, really increasing uh, the a- access and opportunities around mental health. And a part of that is how to expand co-op supportive sites. So that's where we are now. We know we understand that we are an anchor organization. We take that very seriously. We've been in partnership with the city and county of San Francisco for decades. And Sherilyn will talk a little bit more about that. She She's the co-chair of the Human Services Network and what that partnership with the city and county of San Francisco and the nonprofit sector really looks like. And how can we uh, leverage that opportunity for, for greater gains for all of us? 
Sherilyn. Always uh, hard to follow Brett. Um, so I'm Sherilyn. I run Larkin Street Youth Services here in San Francisco. Uh, Larkin Street, similarly to PRC and many of the nonprofits that started in the mid-80s, really came out of community ser- concern for young people, primarily young teenage boys who were on the streets, obviously had um, run away or didn't have a stable place to live. It was in the Polk Gulch area of San Francisco at that time, which looks different today than it did back then. Um, and so folks came together to really talk about what could we do to help help these young boys, these teenage boys, to get uh, access to at least basic need services like food and a daytime shelter and things like that. So we opened a drop-in center and started to provide food and caring adults and opportunities to reunite with family or, or try to resolve uh, whatever might be going on. It was around the time of juvenile justice reform or one round of juvenile justice reform in this country. Um, and it's really where the runaway and homeless youth movement sort of grew and um, was born out of that movement. And then uh, many organizations like Larkin Street starting. So we started as a drop-in center for young people. Um, we have grown over the years, over the past 35 years, to be a full-service suite of, ser- of um, comprehensive services for young people uh, 13 to 24 who are at risk for or experiencing homelessness here in San Francisco. Our engagement programming includes that same basic set of access to food and bathrooms and showers and laundry and clothes and access to case managers and support folks, um, as well as uh, two shelters, uh, housing. We operate about 350 beds of housing throughout the city uh, for young people. And then we wrap all kinds of support around the young people that we work with, including education, employment, life skills, and behavioral health supports. Our ultimate goal is that young people who leave Larkin Street's housing program leave with the ability to have their own housing, have a job, have made significant progress on their employment on their education goals and have the tools to navigate life right so know how to take care of themselves physically and emotionally um, have a connection with a caring adult you know they've fostered some relationships and connections with folks who can be friends and mentors and teachers uh, throughout their lives I like to think of it as the same goals that we all hold for children and teenagers and young people in our lives whether we're parents or aunts or uncles or mm-hmm. you know whatever relationships that we might have with young people in our lives. Um, uh, importantly, young people are disproportionately LGBT and youth of color are disproportionately impacted by homelessness. So we see about 30% of the young people we work with identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning. Um, and uh, well over 60% of the folks we see are youth of color. So we have really centered and grounded our work in addressing that in, in the needs of youth of color and LGBT youth on a path to ending homelessness for all. We are currently engaged in a partnership with the city called Rising Up, which seeks to reduce youth homelessness by 50% by 2023. The latest uh, point-in-time count, some of the figures from the latest point-in-time count, which happens in um, in January of odd years, uh, for folks to, as our way to sort of understand who's impacted by homelessness in our community, uh, showed a reduction, a 10% reduction in youth homelessness. Um, and we know that's directly related to greater investments in addressing the needs of young people. So we are confident that over time, we will be able to ultimately end youth homelessness uh, functionally by having a system that addresses those needs. Um, um, and certainly uh, will are optimistic and will be t- that we can reach our goal uh, by 2023 of reducing the number of young people that sleep on our streets on any given night by 50%. Wow. I have a question about 
um, finding the staff mm -hmm. to help carry out your mission. And I know from here at the Commonwealth Club, we tend to attract people who are interested in public policy and politics and whatever, LGBTQ issues and everything. Um, how do you do it, especially in, in a time when it, it, it you know, nonprofits can almost never compete dollar for dollar in, in the salary market. Um, so we do go for the people who have the commitment to it, but then, of course, you want to keep them. So for both of you who now have very long-running organizations, you want to keep them going, you want them to continue expanding and stuff. How do you find and select, and what are the challenges of doing that in this market? Sherilyn? Yeah, it is. I've been in um, in the nonprofit sector for 30 years. The first 10 was in Sacramento, and as um, Brett referenced, I worked for Baker Places when I got to San Francisco in 97, and I transitioned to Larkin Street in 2003. Um, and I would say that uh, staffing, finding staff, maintaining staff, keeping staff, you know, there's always been a bit of a challenge in the nonprofit sector, but it is really, really difficult um, at this particular juncture for, you know, it is, this uh, the city is increasingly inaffordable as this will be a, a surprise to no one. Um, but for staff working in the nonprofit sector, whose compensation levels are just not where they should be um, and are tend towards the lower end of this, the wage scale, I would say the challenges associated with working in this in the field that they love, right? Folks work at Larkin Street and at PRC and our sister and brother nonprofits because they're dedicated to the mission because they believe in the values and because they want to, to do something for their community. Um, and we we see challenges. I have staff at any given moment, a number of staff who are struggling with homelessness themselves. They're coming in from Vallejo and Sacramento and Modesto and every place in between to work. Um, they're often working two jobs, right? So we'll say, hey, we need to change the schedule. And they're like, they can't, right? Because I have another job to get to um, where they're just doing, you know, working untenable hours in order to just meet their basic needs. Um, and this, I think, just speaks to sort of the challenges of keeping staff feeling um, happy and well compensated or any of the things that we struggle with and really have uh, in this work, uh, we think of the work with young people as extraordinarily relational, right? The work we do with young people is about the connection we hold with them. And so when we cannot sustain staff, particularly at residential counselor levels or case managers, really impacts the ability for young people to make those connections, begin their journey of healing mm. from the trauma and be able to achieve the outcomes that we would like to see for them because the work is so grounded in that one-on-one -on -one connection to the, to the folks that have come into their lives. Yeah, I would echo everything that, that um, Sherilyn said. It is just a difficult it, – it, so a couple to, by way of numbers, uh, how, how large is your staff? Uh, 230. Right. And First of all, I just want to say that Sherilyn and I are friends, like longstanding <laughs> friends. We think we were married like in another life. Another life. Just, just we have a little quarrels. It's just great. <laughs> 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 Uh, uh, so yeah, our staff, 200, we have 270 staff and I, I get an HR sheet, um, once a week and I would say there are about between 18 and 25 open positions at any time. And there are frontline staff and it's clinicians, case managers, you know, it's, um, uh, nurse practitioners, all the things that you need. 
but it, the difficult the difficulty in this is you're competing you're partnered with the city but you're competing with the city and so what does that look like and we have continued conversation about that that complex relationship and uh this is a this is a town that certainly pays a premium in private sector so for a lot of the the frontline workers that we would be going for are going to Kaiser CPMC all of those organizations. So we're competing in the private market as well. So it just makes it incredibly difficult. There's something to be said for, for building career pathways and, and professional development. And often when people are write, kind people are writing checks, they want to write to direct programs or, or they're going to do general operations and we always need general operations, but there's never really the dollars that we can apply to professional development that really keeps them in the work. They really feel like they're, uh, not only contributing and doing something great in the community, but they're actually advancing their lives along the way. Just two other things I want to say is it's, it's really around burnout. We forget the psychological toll and impact um, it has for people who are dealing with people who are in trauma every day. You can't help but know that that impacts your own life. So we're doing all that we can to make sure that there are just health and wellness programs and activities at PRC that people can take advantage of because that that work is hard. And even the most well-meaning individual can only stay in, to, in it so long. We have attorneys. We have 20 attorneys on staff to get disability benefits for our, our clients. I know good and well that, that while many of them are there, certainly to do the work for that has been done for so many years, 30 plus years. They're also there because they get, um, they get, um, where, where am I going with this? Loans, they get uh, waivers and they get discounts on their loans. And once they get to a place where either the loan is paid off or, or deferred in some kind of way that they're comfortable to live their life, our attorneys go and then they go into, you know, other t- types of work that is either in the private sector or, or in the city. So it's just very difficult to create these kinds of opportunities with limited resources. So when you're giving and, and, and you, I know you're all givers. I know you all are writing checks. Please know that, that PRC and, and Larkin are a part of a business as well. Nonprofits are a business and all the many things that are considerations for us that have to do with staff recruitment and retention. Uh, we're experiencing the same thing that many are in the private sector. I want to stay and touch on um, some things that both of you had talked about, and I don't want to glaze over the fact that it is shocking and alarming, or not shocking, actually, but very alarming and scary to think that those of us who are serving our communities are also impacted and users of the resources that we're trying to provide. I mean, Sherilyn had brought up some of the employees are dealing with homelessness themselves. Um, and I, I'd love for both of you to share, you know, just from your perspective of the the impact that it can have on the individual and even yourselves. I mean, I think some people look at you and they see these incredible leaders and you always have a smile on your face, especially when there's a fundraiser. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and then Brett, you talked about, you know, the dra- the trauma that you are also faced with in working with, uh, folks who are, uh, you know, experiencing trauma in, in their own way. I mean, how does that, how do you, how do you even get to a place where, mm-hmm. um, you wake up every morning and you do it all over mm-hmm. again and you're not doing it, you know, eight hours and you clock out. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that <laughs> you're there, 
as long as you need to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'll say a word about uh, at least for for Sherilyn and myself and the other CEOs and executive directors. I mean, it is intentional that we come together, that we get together and 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 talk and kvetch and you know and just just get off of our uh, you know get off of our minds what was happening in that day um, because it normalizes it and that's what I encourage in my staff as well. There's only so much that the agency is going to be able to do for staff, but we were working really hard to make sure that people are talking to each other and sharing their stories because it normalizes the situation that they're not, not only are they dealing with trauma, but they're also isolated. And I wanted them, our staff to know you're not isolated in this situation. We just moved into 179th street. We just got really excited about a a little under 26,000 square foot facility. We did a full renovation on it and it was very intentional that we wanted folks to move through the building. So we went to, um, um, workstations instead of private offices. We built their very large spaces for them to come together to talk and learn of each other and share in their stories and their experiences. There is a power and a strength to storytelling. And it, it isn't just because you're just trying to waste time, but it really helps to heal the soul. So I encourage all of us, even and, and for any of us who are going through something that may seem a little isolated, it's important to, to, to create the courage enough inside of you to share your story because I think it helps us metabolize it and make it a little less painful. Yeah, I would, um, you know, I have, I, I, I love this work, so it's not hard for me to get up every day and do this work with, um, with hope and optimism. I'm also my mother's daughter and that's just how we live. <laughs> every day is a new day. Um, it's grilled <laughs> into my head or drilled into my head. Uh, and I really, you know, I think Brett and I both and our sister and brother, um, EDs and CEOs believe fiercely and are fierce, um, advocates for our staff and for the constituents that we, we work with and for. I think it is also very real that it's a really tough, like the sort of, if you take a step back and look at like the nonprofits um, and sort of the structure and the system, it really is very difficult to sustain with all the hope and optimism that we have. Um, but in this current environment with a lot of both, both the expense and all of the things that are true for any, anybody trying to do work in the city and trying to do this work um, or trying to, to run a business in the, in the city is also that um, the nonprofit structure focuses a lot or when we think about nonprofits, right, we think, well, how are they directing all their dollars to the direct services? Um, there's a belief, I think, that because we're doing good work, that the compensation levels are not that important, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're doing God's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, we're doing good work because we care about it, but staff should be compensated. And mm-hmm. we would both pay our staff a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but our contracts are limited. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there's a lot of focus on what our indirect costs are or how much we're spending on uh, staff compensation or, or management or other things. And we, you, we cannot sustain high quality managers and sustain folks who want to continue to work in this field who were both our organizations are 24 seven, right? So folks are on call. Folks have, you know, it, it is not just us who can't like, you know, are on call all the time. All, many of our staff are on call. Our managers or directors are on call to address issues uh, throughout the night or over the weekend that could be client issues or facility issues. We have had two floods and one fire and that's just Thursday. <laughs> well, it's not Thursday. I should say it's since last Thursday. <laughs> that's just a week. Um, nobody was hurt. Uh, so these are just like, you know, the things that happen. So I would say that as 
But we, when I think about what helps keep me sane besides a fabulous partner and a really cool nine-year-old daughter is that, um, is when community, when folks can come and help advocate, not, you know, or support our organizations, but also to really support the nonprofit sector, right? By, by believing in the work we're doing, by holding us accountable for outcomes and impact, but also by saying, and it should be a sustainable job, mm-hmm. right? We should pay nonprofit workers what they need mm-hmm. in order to do the jobs, or at least so that they could be compensated within a, a market that, uh, uh, that we could be a competitive marketplace, if you will. So I think I think it's the, we have to look at it both from the systemic level as well as on the individual level that Brett's talking about. Like, yeah, how do we create spaces for folks to talk? We've been fortunate to have um, a, a, a psychiatrist who's been volunteering her time to run wellness groups for staff to give them a space to talk about some of the mm-hmm. trauma and some of the things that come up. Um, so that they have that kind of space, they can get that off their chest, they can develop some tools so they can go back into the work mm-hmm. and work with young people. Um, but I think we need, you know, individual support and we need system level change and how we think about the operations and funding for the nonprofit sector. That touches on some interesting th- stuff. Uh, last year, I had the pleasure of copy editing a book on uh, the new philanthropic uh, environment in Asia. So a lot of these countries that have suddenly, you know, gotten to nice levels of wealth and you have both governments that are looking to work with private partners, even in, in China and such. Um, but it also, of course, lots of wealthy individuals as well as just middle class that is looking for places to put its money. Um, but one of the biggest problems they're having in a number of these countries, and particularly in, in China, is trust in the organization. You, you mentioned just something that, you know, people know you're spending the money well, that you're a trustworthy organization. Mm-hmm. And so they're just kind of getting at that spot over there in many countries where they're saying, okay, we need standards. We need to be able to say we all live up to this standard and, and you know, you can see our our records and we track this and this is how we pay people and such. And they've, you know, had a few scandals that have hurt, in, you know, in a ways. Um, are there, I mean, both of you being leaders of established organizations, is that a challenge you have or, and kind of where I'm going with this meandering question is, with the influx of new people into the cities and such, and so you're trying to maybe reach new donors and such, do they have completely different expectations of what to expect from you? And even more, we want you to be more like a business. So can, you know, does that require you to change any of the ways that you explain yourselves and, and reach out to new uh, donors and supporters? You don't provide free lunch and, and yeah. ping pong and beer yeah, and all that. Yeah. yeah. On draft. So, uh, and I know you're going to jump on this because we were in a meeting once and you said something and I'm getting ready to quote you. Uh <laughs> Yeah, one, I think, uh, like, I'll just use the, the, the broad tech community without painting with too broad of a brush. They, they benefit from the luxury of, uh, sometimes having a, you know, a spaghetti against the wall strategy. Let's just take two million dollars, throw it against the wall, see what sticks, what sticks we'll run with, we'll do a beta on it, we'll do a couple pilots, and all of a sudden you have a smartphone or something. And it was, it, it was often felt in these groups that we were in with nonprofits and tech and, 
tech folks. Why can't you just do that? Why can't you just take a bit of money and throw it against the wall and see what sticks and you do some prescriptive analytics and all of a sudden you've got really good metrics and you have great impact. And it, and Sherilyn said, you know, as politely, and you can see how polite she is. She said, we don't have the luxury of that because if we did that, people's lives are at stake and they can die. They will die if we did that. So we have to give the best thinking that we possibly can, be as creative and strategic as we possibly can, and, and put our best thought to it, and then go for it, and, and hope that it, it happens. And often we get there. We do get there because there are some very bright, caring individuals who've been doing this work for quite some time. So it's well-informed when we move forward with innovation. Because it was all about, remember, that meeting was disruption. How do you disrupt in the nonprofit sector? We're like, disrupt? Yeah, disrupt has, you know, a, a kind of a, you know, a shadow side to it. I would just say that. The other thing that I would say is, yes, Sherilyn said, uh, you know, this, I hear it often. Oh, God, you do God's work, God's work. And I go, well, we're all children of God. So I think we're all doing the work. Or are you doing the work of the devil? I don't know. If, <laughs> tell me now, and we can end this conversation. But uh, so I'm assuming we're all doing something type of God's, God's work. Um, I was at, I was at a, a bar, no surprise there. And that's what, came out, of my, that's what came out of my mouth. Uh, so I appreciated the intent, but I was like, we're all doing God's work and everybody plays a role in it. But for nonprofits in the United States, you know, we've, uh, they, we've been certainly monitored and, and upped our professional uh, game because we've had to. And, and it was because of what was happening in the for-profit world, the Enrons and the, and the, and the, what are they, Crossroads and, and Sarbanes-Oxley that then got applied to the nonprofits as well. So we were often, you know, we were playing by the rules. It was the it was the for profit sector that was kind of drawing and playing outside the line. So it was it wasn't a surprise for us. And we can prove our where our dollars are being spent and the outcomes of uh, uh, of the efforts of those dollars. So I we feel quite comfortable in that. But for developing countries, I certainly can understand that. Yeah. And, and I think that the nonprofit sector has work to do as well. You know, I think um, in the locally and in the U.S., I think. We, I feel strongly that we should be able to demonstrate what outcomes and know what impact we're seeking to achieve and how well or not well we're doing that. Um, and that it, we are stewards of other people's monies, um, who are investing in our work to, and have, uh, you know, have, we have a right, they have an obligation, whatever the terminology is to be able to demonstrate that. I think, uh, the, the point that Brett made, you know, I, um, uh, around innovation and, uh, res- and R and D, right? Like in, in corporate or business, you get to do research and development where you get to test ideas and think about things. You get permission to fail. And while I do think we have to, you know, that our work is with human beings and we need to be super thoughtful about that. Um, I also think it would be great to get fr- like probably having, um, unrestricted dollars, having dollars and grants that are, uh, have flexibility to them so that mm-hmm. we can try strategies um, and we can do new things that so we can see if they can work and we can test those out a bit um, with our knowledge and our expertise and our experience. So I would say that part of what would happen is folks would be like, I'd love for you to like, what's innovative. And I, you know, we have a strategic plan about getting folks who are ex- um, who've been experiencing homelessness and had disrupted education uh, to, uh, like post-secondary ready or beyond post-secondary readiness, but into having made one year's post, uh, um, one year's uh, progress towards their academic goals around either uh, certification or um, on track for a two-year AA degree, um, employed, housed, like in a couple of years. I was like, that's 
innovative, right? Like that's a lot of work for us to reach for that goal. Um, and so I think partly it's understanding what is innovative in the space of human services and nonprofit work. I think we have to be responsible um, and be able to demonstrate outcomes. I also think people have to understand what it takes to actually track that, to know that you're doing that, to have an evaluation internal or external of the work you're doing, and to be able to continue the work you are sort of contracted to do. Our government dollars are incredibly restricted. They really are asking whether or not you're using blue or red pencils. Hmm. It's, you know, so that's hard, but we can do that. So we need to be thoughtful about when, when folks are thinking about investing or how to measure the impact of a nonprofit to really be in conversation with the nonprofit sector about that. And as a sector, we have to make sure that we are also being responsible stewards of the dollars that mm-hmm. come to us because they, it ain't our money right? And we are playing with people's lives, mm-hmm. right? So we have to know that what we're doing is working because otherwise we are, we are, you know, what if we, we, we don't know what we're doing is not doing harm, right? Or isn't doing the right thing. It's humans. They're mm-hmm. humans. So we need to be super intentional and thoughtful about our work and have some evidence to support that what we're doing is actually working. Talking about the money part, um, uh, Viva Glam Foundation, which is the nonprofit foundation that began through Mac Cosmetics, and they started selling um, lipsticks uh, to support the HIV/AIDS community. They're celebrating, you know, 25 years this year, and their executive director had come out to say, "We've we've have a ton of progress, and we've saved a ton of lives." But you know what? The amount of money that we've raised, and even the number of folks that we have saved, it's not enough. There's still more work, you know, that we need to do. So that really, there was a light bulb that went off in my head before this talk where it's like, we all know if you have been a part of the nonprofit world that it never is really enough. Um, but to, to get specific to a city like San Francisco, and we hit it a couple times throughout the, the, uh, the talk and how San Francisco has grown and there's a tech mm-hmm. community and lots of people have this idea in their mind that there's so much money. There's so much money in the city of San Francisco and many opportunities of who we can be asking for money. And I won't name a specific tech company, but they had just given or, or the, had conversations of giving millions to homelessness, the issue of homelessness, but going into research. And that opened up this big conversation of why are we putting mm-hmm. it to to research when it can go to direct services. So that was really a long way of asking for both your opinions on, you know, this, the opportunity of asking for money and Mm -hmm. from whom, and is there a ton of money and opportunities in, you know, San Francisco? And is that the tech community? Are they giving enough? Can we be asking for more? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> Not a loaded. Gee, none of that. Was loaded. <laughs> none of that's loaded. Yeah. Definitely. So, all right. And when's this airing? Yeah. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, like I, you know, I always like, fold this leave. So my, uh, my, my partner is in tech. I feel like I walked into every nonprofit in tech, especially <laughs> in the early, early, um, times when there was a lot of tension, not that there's still not a lot of tension between the nonprofit sector and the tech community. And I'd walk into every meeting, like just full disclosure, my partner's in tech has been. Um, so, you know, like I think I prefer to not uh, necessarily focus on a particular sector um, uh, or a, a particular industry and really talk about um, uh, the funding um, 
I, I think there's an immense, obviously there's a lot of wealth here in San Francisco. And I, uh, have a firm belief that people should, who have, um, have capacity or like people need to get, like, you need to get involved in the things that you care about, whether that's financially or your time or your expertise. So for those that have great big, you know, that have at wealth or have access or have means or have capacity, I hope they're investing that in a thing that they care about, right? Because we, it, that's what community is. And that's what investment in your city is or in your, um, in your state or your country or your people, like whatever your cause is, get involved and support it. I firm like that. I just think is our moral imperative, um, and our responsibility as living, breathing human beings. Oh. So whether that's climate or homelessness or education or behavioral health, do something, oh. um, and share your wealth. So, and I think there's lots and lots of folks that do that. Uh, I think they could do more. I think they could ask us more what we need. I think we should not, like, there's lots of folks I hear that say, well, Prop C has solved homelessness funding. Prop C is in court. Mm -hmm. It's being litigated. It may result in funding for homelessness, but right now those dollars are held in escrow. So it is not being used to address homelessness mm. or the, you know, so we need funding to support that. We need funding that supports specific programming and populations like youth or families or adults or seniors. Mm. We need funding for specific interventions that are, um, that work. Residential treatment works. Co-op works. Working works. Benefits advocacy works to address these things, but we have to scale it. And I know there was stuff around the sort of um, contribution to create the research, uh, UCSF. I think it's vital that we understand and have better evidence about what works and how we scale that and how we can use what we know to leverage better policies, better, um, better utilization of resources locally and regionally. So I think there's a role in doing that. I hear folks' concern and you know, just as I just said, research and evaluation, mm -hmm. research and development. Like we do need to understand what's working. We need brains on that. And we also know that young people and seniors and folks are dying on our streets mm. because of addiction, because of homelessness and because of other things. And that will only change when we invest in the folks that are doing the work um, and support them in trying to to uh, be able to scale their programs over time. So it's a both end. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I, I would say to that end, yes, there is enough money. There's enough money to do both. Do research and concurrently provide service, provide funding to direct services. And don't always look for a broker. You know, sometimes it's okay to just go directly to the nonprofit and say, I want to fund you. I've heard about you. You know, I appreciate you for having us on and elevating the conversation. And, and these, these are the ways in which we truly do. When you raise awareness, you can raise funds through raising awareness. So thank you for this. There needs to be more of it. There need to be more profiles of nonprofits doing really great work in the Chronicle and in, in San Francisco Magazine and 7 by 7 still around? 7 by 7 online do that online um <laughs> and, and so that that is helpful i i did want to say this and it really goes around uh the big v word the value word you know in many of these situations where there is plight and blight um you can find a, a higher 
profile, a kind of a shared profile. And is it women, people of color? You have to think about the value that you attribute to an individual or groups of individuals. And have we in some uh, unconscious or subconscious way decided to put value to different people so that you then put discounted amounts of value to the resources that you put towards them. So I challenge us to not just give to the things that are important to you, because I think they will continue to be funded. I challenge you to give to something that you don't know really a whole lot about, but you understand that there's challenge in the world because of it. I I mean, the the convergence of um, the Me Too campaign, the convergence of Black Lives Matter, the convergence of Never Again with gun violence. I mean, all LGBT issues, all of these together, we had to say, look, if I don't care about your issue, you then you ultimately have no reason to care about my issue. So how is it that we can show up for each other? So when you write a check that's a dollar for the, your favorite organization, I would challenge you to write 75 cents to that cause and 25 to something else or a dollar still to that cause and give another 25 cents times whatever to something that you really don't know about, but you know it's impactful to your friends' lives or to your family's lives. So it's really about challenging ourselves. <clears throat> Uh, five or six years ago, I know our, our president and CEO here, Gloria Duffy, who has a long history with foundations and, and working with uh, donors of all types. She was writing about the fact that it used to be a schoolyard needed to be redone, a, a library needed to be rebuilt, uh, an SRO needed to be revitalized or whatever. There were certain folks you could get into a room, have a dinner. This is what we need to do. And she was saying, you know, the, the atmosphere has definitely changed. I mean, there are still some of those folks around, you know, the four families or whatever, but that it's, it's almost as if needing to teach people kind of what, what you were saying, why they have a role to play mm-hmm. beyond simply watching someone else fix a problem or just saying, well, my taxes are going to that. Why, you know, yep. um, what is the best way to inculcate this this realization you have a, you know, it, it, a lot of people would, would have that built in, in, in a religious faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course you can't tell someone to get religious faith. So, mm-hmm. um, is there a way to kind of inculcate, you know, a, a devotion to your community and to others, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, maybe they don't have already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, I've been asked a couple of times to speak to, high school classes about philanthropy, just, you know, so not, not necessarily, I mean, sometimes I speak to different groups about issues of homelessness and, um, but sometimes it's about, or, uh, it's, it's also about just, if I was thinking about doing something like just that, like, how could I be of service, right? Whether that's dollars or how could I, how could I better understand what I, what questions I should be asking a nonprofit that I might be interested in, um, and giving money to. So I think education is important. I think all of us can be ambassadors for, for that kind of, um, uh, community or individual awareness. I do think folks feel, uh, I think especially now I would imagine fairly overwhelmed by, by both the sort of issues that are happening in our community, as well as the sort of like all the confusing messages that come out a little bit about like things like prop C or, well, there seems like there's a lot of money and we're spending a lot of money. How do I, but doesn't seem to be working. Right. There's a lot coming at us and that's just locally leave alone what's happening at the state or, you know, at the federal level. Right. So there's just a lot of stuff that we're all trying to sift through. And so I think a lot of it is people being able to, I, you know, we draw the lines right through education or exposure. If folks come to Larkin street to 
you know, help organize the clothing closet or do group projects or do a focus group with us about what they know about youth homelessness so we can message better what, you know, what is happening. I think doing things at lunch and learns at different um, places where folks work is helpful. I mean, our lives go, people are moving so fast and we're, you know, usually attached to a device. And so I think the human connection helps. And I think drawing the lines, like I was talking about drawing the lines between the things that happen and what, you know, what, what's going on, like come to the tenderloin, Mm -hmm. like see the vibrance of the community, Mm -hmm. not just the things that are troubling and painful to see on the street, right? Like see the community, right? So I think a part of it is we just have to draw more human connections and more opportunities Mm -hmm. for folks to connect with, um, with, you know, maybe out of their comfort zones or things like that. Right. And, I don't know. I think it's about the human connection. I think it's about people being ambassadors and sharing knowledge about um, about why it's important to be involved in the community for folks. I think most people want to help. I just think mm-hmm. they don't know how. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to who the community actually is in San Francisco um, at the end of the program. But I want to leave some time for our audience to ask our incredible mm-hmm. speakers here today mm-hmm. your questions. And so John has a roving mic. If you have a question for Brett or Sherilyn. Mm-hmm. Hi, Avi Lambert. I'm the Director of Education at Cuesa. Thank you so much for everything you both said, talking about intersectionality. I also think food insecurity is a huge thing that isn't always wrapped up in what we're all talking about. But I really wanted to ask, how do you both approach work-life balance and what are some self-care tips or things you do that keep you going? Mm -hmm. Work-life balance. Tell me more about it. what can I say about that? I'll, I'll say what, what Sherilyn said earlier. It, it is my passion. It's my passion. So, so I really have to challenge myself to take vacation. I enjoy this work so much. It is so hard. And because, and, and because it, when it's so hard and you have a success, you really relish in the success. It was really meaningful. You know that you've changed somebody's life. And so I, I do this, the classic things. I um, go to the gym on a pretty regular basis. Probably I need to do more regularity, put, add more regularity to that. And I spend a lot of time with my friends. I do. And I, so I wasn't joking. We spend a lot of time together uh, throughout the day and in the evening. And I just make sure that I have a human connection because I really do need to connect. This work is so difficult at times that you can just get focused on the budget that you're trying to balance and not ultimately why you're trying to balance that budget. So I just wanted to say this word about, my, about myself. My, I come out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my mother is a Polish Jew and my dad is uh, African-American. They're both past. And they married in 1950, which was in Pennsylvania. We know Pennsylvania, don't we? It was a tough thing. And, but, you know, my mother brought that value of giving back constantly. Like, that is your job. There's nothing, a, a greater, more nobler goal that you can have than to be of service to someone else. And so uh, I hold that as a, as a high value for myself. And um, it really gets me through those really tough times. I, I think to myself, what else would you be doing? Really, what would you be doing? I would be doing it. Even if I had no lots of money, I'd still be doing the same virtual type of work. Um, yeah. So I hang out with Brett. <laughs> uh, um, so I uh, um, I use humor a lot to to sort of cope. I think that's a great thing. I also am a runner. I have a lot of great friends, and we do a lot of running together. And we've known each other for a really long time. I have a fabulous partner, and I have a nine year old daughter. And I think. Um, uh, and, and I think really, um, 
the things that help me have life work life balance have a lot to do with having somebody that I have to get home to at some point in the evening uh, because I choose to and that somebody whose vibrance and innocence and um way that she moves in the world is inspiring to me every day um and it really is I think about community at the end of the day right so work life balance or balance in my life is about community, the community of folks, Brett and the other EDs and CEOs that we hang out with, my community of runners and friends, my family, the community I create through my daughter, with my daughter and her and, and through her school, um, all are ways in which I get replenished and rejoice, right? Um, we have also been known to drink Chardonnay occasionally, which occasionally. I think is just occasionally a good idea. <laughs> I, I want to add just very quickly because actually John and I were supposed to ask that question the whole time that we just got so wrapped up in, you know, what nonprofits need. When I served as board president for San Francisco Pride, it really did it it did take everything in, in, of me. I just stepped off last year, but I cried a lot, which was good. And um, I talk about this all the time, but I knew when to like step away. Because you have, if you have that this natural tendency to like want to give and want to help, you will run yourself to the ground to the mm-hmm. point where you're just unavailable, mm-hmm. and and then you're not serving anybody. Um, and so, really, to anybody who's in nonprofit work, I think that's most important. Which you know, with supervisor Haney and Ronan mm-hmm. uh, leading a, a, a universal mental health program for San Francisco, I think that's inclusive of anybody who gives uh, as well. My question is, given all the ways that you've talked about how work affects people, you know, they're really positive and then they're really hard. What happens when people decide they just can't do it anymore? What, where do they go or what, what do you help them do? Or what, what's the, the, you know, second life for a lot of folks who really Mm -hmm. see the world the way you see it? Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, Well, I think hmm, it's a good question. And I think there's on the positive side, right? Maybe folks, um, uh, work in our industry and, and there's a lot of transferable skills. And so I think part of our job is not just about building and supporting folks to stay in our organizations, but also where else do they, can they go work? Do they want to work? Whether that's in the, you know, various, um, you know, obviously the city and the county is an employer and Kaiser's and, or whether they want to go to other, other things and other jobs and other sectors. Um, and so I think some of that, uh, some of the next stage of, of things that people do is sometimes in the sector and sometimes not. And I think trying our best to support folks in really getting to the path that works for them. You know, I think in increasingly, sadly, on the sad part, I guess, sometimes um, folks are leaving the area, right? <laughs> so we have lots of I, the most of many of the folks that are sort of exiting, leaving Larkin Street now are moving out of the state or out of the area um, because for all the reasons that we see other folks leaving, right? Like where I want to raise my kids or can I be someplace where they can walk to school or um, I want to be someplace with a quieter um quieter lifestyle or it's just I can't afford to continue to stay in and around the Bay Area. So I think, you know, we next stage in life for folks and at Larkin Street in particular, we have a, our staff skew younger. We have a lot of folks who come to us um, 
either directly out of college or if, if um, not out of college, sort of first or second sort of jobs in their in their pathway, their careers. Um, so, you know, there are often sort of life transitions happening, right? They get married, get connected, whatever's right. So I think there's stage of life, but I also think it's just this is a hard place when you're young and working in the sector, nonprofit sector to stay. Um, and I think our jobs then are to really think about how long we can keep folk, um, what, how we can build support for professional development and opportunities so that whatever that next path is um, and whatever sector that next path is, they're well, sort of well positioned for it, if you will. Yeah, I'd say, I think we had, we um, had 37 um, transitions uh, last year and 34 of them were about affordability and location. So the vast majority of them just found another job in the East Bay. They, they, you know, it, it, of course, we all know who, public transit and how difficult it was even yesterday, um, that it's, a, it's about a quality of life. And they say, I'm taking even a lesser job, lesser paying job just to be home closer to my kids. So it was, it was all really about affordability and quality of life that Mm-hmm. Many people make this decision, so rea- it's a reality of the Bay Area. Thank you all for for doing this. This is very interesting to say. I'm Heather Dickinson. I'm the new director over at Care Through Touch Institute, and um, uh, my question is not fully formed, so bear with me. But I guess um, I've been a director now for about ten months. Our former director and founder ran the organization for 35 years. I've been meeting with a lot of directors of a lot of different nonprofits, and one of the thing that things that comes up a lot is this struggle that so many people are in. So many directors I know aren't even making a livable wage themselves mm-hmm. or even pulling a salary. So I guess um, when I've come into our organization, historically the majority of the funding has come from religious organizations. We're not a religious organization, but we're in case people don't know, providing kind of an odd service to the community, but one that's very needed. Um, we do hands-on seated massage therapy, actually, even with Larkin Street Youth. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that these are kind of the untouchables in our society. Mm-hmm. And many times mm-hmm. don't get looked at, looked at or touched for years or months, and that's very effective to your mental and physical health. So with religious organizations being our primary funding in the past and a lot of those funds drying up as these communities are also becoming a thing of the past um, in that a lot of people aren't going into becoming a nun and her sister and they're the ones who get this work really mm-hmm. well historically. Do you have advice on kind of as religion maybe loses its importance in our society as a whole, how do we encourage people to have that same sense of tithing if that religion isn't like in there mm-hmm. and i'm not asking as a person who associates even with one religious organization but just as someone who grew up in faith like that was always in imbued mm-hmm. into my mind and something that even if i'm not going to church on sunday i still do in my life but mm-hmm. i notice a lot of people maybe aren't doing that as much and so how do you encourage this kind of idea yeah. of sustainability, I guess, for organizations that are doing kind of a yeah. little more obscure things. Mm-hmm. So a couple things that I would say from um, just around creating a space for that conversation, we had a, we share a dear friend, Roger Lowe, who did the Roger Lowe Institute. And in many ways, there were health and human service organizations and faith-based organizations coming together in a very intentional way that had direct directors and boards of directors and executive directors 
having a conversation, this, this cross conversation and cross learning about services and what we can do. And I think you have to come at it. I go back to my big V word from a values base where it isn't about religion. It is about spirituality. And what are the values that one tends to hold and protect and preserve and maintain and abide by? And, and whether you are religious or non-religious, I'm, I'm assuming I would bet that many of those same values are in just the health and human sector as well. So I think it's about talking about shared values that can at least start the conversation, if not keep the conversation going with some level of understanding and, and detente and shared glossary of terms in there. And then the other thing that I would say just around organizational funding, uh, you know, I've often encouraged faith-based organizations, and I know you're right, there used to be so many, and actually funded through government a lot more. I've been in the field 28 years and, and did a lot of my nonprofit work on the East Coast. There was just funding for it. So it's all seeming to dry away, dry up along with, you know, just religion as a whole. It, it's, a, it's really important, I think, to partner and to provide to see if you can write grants together to collaborate and and let the whatever the other organization the, the 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 secular organization lead the way and make you a partner and every time you do that you kind of build a profile and a portfolio that says boy they're a great partner and while they are a little untr- you know unconventional and unorthodox i think every we could all benefit every time your services provided in some kind of way. So I'm, I'm just thinking about how, how to direct funding and stream, you know, to streamline some funding to you as, as funds dry up and the interest in religion kind of is waning. Yeah. But you just, well, that's where your funding used to come mm-hmm. from. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think there, I mean, I, I, so I would, I would say I agree with Brett on that. I mean, partnering or figuring out a different sort of funding model is really what you're talking about, right? How do you think about what's the funding model for the organization, given that the one that has um, sustained it in the past is changing? And some of that may be, I mean, around um, connections with individuals or different ways for folks to do to connect with the work of the organization. I also think the reality in the nonprofit sector, like um, this goes back to a question around um, both the oversight and the sort of um, structures of the organizations. We have a lot of requirements um, the, the comments that Brett made that the things that happened in the for-profit sector then also got us new regulations, right? <laughs> um, so it, you know, the running of a nonprofit today is extraordinarily complex and we have a lot of requirements on us around funding and all of the things, right? Yes. So I also think it really calls on us, and this is not specific to, to your organization, calls on us to think about what is the size and what does this funding structure and mechanisms need to be for a nonprofit to be sustainable, especially in the city of San Francisco, where we have a lot of funded man, un, unfunded mandates that we need to adhere to things we agree with, like minimum compensation ordinances and um, and family or, you know, additional uh, family time leave or sick leave, like all good things that we are required and should be providing, but they come without funding. So I think we have to also think about how do we sustain organizations? Is there a particular size of organization or funding model that needs to work for different types of organizations? Where does strategic partnerships make sense um, so that we're uh, to, to, to take advantage of the sort of um, efficiencies of scale and, uh, and all of those things? So I think as a sector, we have to both... So we, we can talk about how can folks be, how can we get um, 
more philanthropic dollars and public funding to support the things we care about? And also, what do we need to do in the nonprofit sector to think about how we operate given the sort of changing environment that we live in um, so that we can sustain the services that we uh, know are so important to the to the folks that we all care about? I feel like there should be a part two of this. Yeah, can I ask <laughs> one talk. more? One well, more we question? have one more. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. We have time it's, for for. Is it? One. Is there anyone else who wanted to ask a question? Just uh, keeping up with time. Okay, we'll end with you. Well, I guess my my next question being: Do you feel like the city of San Francisco, or just the Bay Area in general, the, the multiple different cities that are really hit by this right now? Um, would it make sense? Because sometimes I think about maybe it's the city that should be meeting with all of the nonprofits and the big companies and kind of trying to figure out, OK, well, which organizations are doing similar things and how can we provide them with buildings so that they're not having to be priced out themselves? How do we make sure that everybody's getting a livable wage? And it just seems like a com- in my mind, the, what I've been learning in the last year is that the way nonprofits have been running in the past has drastically changed from what they're running like now. And the expectation is all this data, but you can't collect data without more people. And when you're writing your grants, you can't have more people without balancing these expectations of direct services. And, mm-hmm. and so it just seems like the whole thing needs to be reimagined. And if we're really getting down to the root of it, it needs to be more community-based and it needs to be the organization's the biggest companies in the city, the city itself, and all the nonprofits who are trying to do the work coming together and trying to find a new model. But yeah. that's just my opinion. It's, it, it, I think it's a conversation that has ebbed and flowed over the years. And I would just say this about being on the back, on the back end of this strategic partnership that we just did, this double merger. These are, the, these are courageous conversations. They are, they're crucial conversations, which mean they will have some uncharted choppy water that you will have to get through. And, and we, we benefited from the fact that they were transitioning other executive directors. So they, those organizations were in, in effect leaderless. So the conversations could continue. But at some point we step in and the boards have egos and founders have egos and all of those things and who's on top and who. And and so it it can get stalled at different times. But I agree with you. Those conversations need to be had more. Uh, I, I think we just need to have the, the courage in order to have them. The one thing I did want to say, I just want to give a note to, a nod to San Francisco. You know, I go to, you go to many conferences. We travel around the United States, um, uh, meeting other organizations and uh, being in other municipalities. And on balance, I have to just say San, San Francisco really does. I mean, I know it sometimes throws a lot of money with, with, with limited strategy around it, but it has an intention and a care to it that I appreciate and I, and I I appreciate it more every time I, I travel. The Ryan White HIV dollars that we got in, in the late 90s, we got about $40 million from the feds. That has shrunk um, to about $18 million right now. The backfill of that was through San Francisco. Throughout all, I've been with five mayors um, over since 2003, and every one of them and the multiple board, board, board members at the Board of Supervisors all made the commitment to that. So I, I, I know the intention is there, and they can rally around a cause when there is a value attributed to it. I just believe that we need to widen our view of what we see as valuable, both in terms of services and, and individuals. Yeah, I would agree. 
Perfect. <laughs> well, we're, Good place we've, to live run, and work. we've run out of time, and so I, I, I don't get to la- uh, ask the last question, which I usually normally do. <laughs> but, but I love this concept, which we talked about uh, yesterday between Sherilyn, uh, and Brett, and I, and this, you know, this idea that San Francisco has lost its soul, or, or that it's disappointed us. Well, uh, adding to what you just said, I'm proud of San Francisco mm-hmm. because I think the soul of the city are community leaders, just uh, yourself, who give in. Um, every day, uh, day in and day out, and who keep our communities alive. So thank you for being here today. We're here every Thursday afternoon at noon. So if you want to check out the rest of the schedule and who's coming up, you can head to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Let's give a huge round of applause for our amazing community leaders, Sherilyn and Brett. Thank you.